Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. On today's show, we have Sherwin Nelson Clemens, VP and Senior Advisor at GV Financial, uh, a financial advisory firm here in the Atlanta area. Welcome, Sherwin. Thank you, Sweeney. It's good to be here with you. So, Sherwin, I, I always start the show by asking our guests about the trends that they're seeing in their area of expertise that they think are really important for CEOs to know about. So I'll toss that over to you. What do you think CEOs should know about right now? I think they should be very aware of um, their reaction to what they're seeing in the marketplace. Um, we have a very unique brand um, category of wealth management that's called behavioral wealth management. And a significant a component of behavioral wealth management is this idea that it's novel, that we're actually human. And, <laughs> and as humans, we have, um, very human biological reactions to what is happening around us that goes through our filters. And so those filters create biases. And so there's been, um, a lot of growth in the domestic markets and the U.S. markets, uh, from an investment standpoint. And as a result, Seeing that strong bull market, it has been very difficult for some investors to feel like they're missing out, particularly if they are using principles of asset allocation and they have a diversified portfolio. And so um, it, it's, you know, I was thinking about it um, in just conversations we've been having with different clients and the level of anxiety and angst of potentially missing out um, on a significant uptick will often cause you to abandon sound principle in investing. And so that's something to be very careful about because it can um, cause you to react not being aware that you're having an emotional response versus which you will then justify logically um, and then make some pretty, pretty significant changes in your retirement plans, your investment portfolio. That could be a big mistake down the road. So um, managing the emotions behind that, what we call this home team bias of seeing the U.S. markets do so well has been um, it's been a challenge. Um, and we often forget past trends that we've gone through when you, we kind of look at bubbles or look at high um, PEs and we want to jump in at just the right time, which is usually wrong because that's just how we're wired as humans. And so the, the home team bias is people want to take their money and rebalance their portfolio in favor of U.S., investments because the foreign markets are not doing as well. Well, the foreign markets aren't doing as well um, relative to the domestic markets. And we are in the U.S. and we're saying great U.S. companies are doing great as demonstrated by some of our most prominent indexes. And so you're exactly right. The home team bias says, hey, I'm missing out. I'm this is us. I want to go in there and I want to be able to have a part of um, the, the the excitement um, of what seems to be going on um, here domestically. And so tell me about this, how behavioral wealth management works. So 
the fact that people bring their emotions into their investment decisions, I think mm-hmm. most people are kind of understand that, you know, the bubbles that we've seen in the past 10 or so years are a clear indication that that yeah. is the case. But when you talk about applying or trying to address that through wealth management, what mm-hmm. does that actually mean and how does that look? It's um, it's really interesting to me because we often will assess and see the bubbles but we see it as a problem in other people and not in ourselves. So we rationalize our decisions that um, and say we're not being affected by our emotions. Um, and so with behavioral wealth management, what we realized after 10 years of really trying to really doing this, having a conversation, but not having a way to uh, name it is that, Traditional financial planning and wealth management is about the dollars and cents. And what we are missing is the fact that we make decisions first from the most developed part of our brain, which is our kind of the, our ancestor brain where it says you sh- it's, it, it goes into fight or flight. The reptilian brain. The reptilian brain, you know, and um, what happens in that situation is there's, you know, we say your CEO has gone AWOL. You're in a high stress situation. <laughs> and when that's happening, that's not a good time to make a financial decision. So your executive function basically has been compromised. It's been compromised. But because we are, because our uh, prefrontal cortex and our more developed brain has adjusted and developed in a way to help us reason and make decisions, we rationalize the decision that our reptilian brain has already made. And we recognize that um, when there's a high stress situation or a high stakes situation, science has shown that your ability to see all of your options is diminished. You can get tunnel vision. You can actually become hyper vigilant. So we work very hard to help the clients climb down what we call that anxiety of wealth pyramid or to just get the oxygen back into the brain so they can think clearly. That's one part of it. The other thing is acknowledging that when you have life events, they have an impact on how you make your financial decisions. So life events could be moving. It could be becoming an empty nester, um, retirement, um, a big trip that you're making that was on your bucket list for many, many years. All of these create a an emotional response in us that we believe you should acknowledge in order to position yourself to make the best financial decision for yourself. And so we have over 40 tools and conversations that we integrate with the financial planning discussion as well as the wealth management discussion. Yeah. So that was my next question. When uh, uh, So when somebody comes in with this, you know, their their executive function is compromised. They're like, I want you to sell everything, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever the irrational irrational statement or behavior is, I guess what I'm not hearing or not understanding is what does GV bring to that? So what we bring to that are first the acknowledgement that there is something going on um, with you that, (laughs) and so we probably are not in a good place to jump into having a financial discussion. So before we have a financial discussion, we may go through a few exercises to get you calm or to get you centered, or just to clean the palate. You may have just been frustrated from 
walking from our very confusing parking garage um, into the building. And so a few tools may be um, a gratitude exercise. And that's simply saying, taking a moment, and we may do it with you and say, let's list five things that you're grateful for and why. And then at the end of that exercising, reflecting back over what you listed and acknowledging how you feel as a result. It has an amazing ability, ability to get you calm. Um, one is another tool is also called spotlight on the positives, where we ask you to look back over the last 30 days and list five to six things that have been blessings, achievements, things that you would consider to be positive and just recall them. And that has an amazing way of getting you centered and actually raising your happiness um, set point for that moment so you can make better decisions. Um, another one is confidence, which I often bring up in financial situations. So you come in and you're saying, oh, my gosh, I'm missing out, sell everything or, you know, put it all on black whatever the black is for the day. And in that situation, I'm going to ask, what are you concerned about? And what are you concerned about? And what are um, you afraid of? And you may say, you know, I'm just missing out on what my friends are doing. So we may say, well, okay, that's fair. Um, that's one of the ways we as Americans like to determine success is comparing ourselves to others. So we may have you do a confidence exercise. A confidence exercise says that we're always on the edge of the unknown. And as we face an uncertain future, what is it that you have confidence in that you can make the right investment decisions going forward? And so we try to get out five to six. It's magical. Actually, the first three come in pretty easily. That but fifth one and sixth one are often harder to uh, come about. But around that time, you start to think more clearly. Then we can engage in what's really going on. It's like trying to have a conversation with a um, two-year-old who's having a tantrum. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with Thankfully, a two-year-old? Thankfully, I don't have children, and so I have never been that close to a two-year-old. Have you seen them in the store? Yes, thank Okay, you. and the mom's come on, don't do that. No, <laughs> calm down. And the two-year-old's still screaming and running around having their tantrum. That's really what's happening to us in, in our adult world. You know, we're saying, sell it. You're not doing a good job. I'm so frustrated with what's going on at work. They're making horrible decisions. That is your temper tantrum. And in, to, for me to try to have a very logical conversation with you and say, remember, there's reversion to the mean and we're buying low and selling high. And over time, diversified portfolios perform better than stock picking. You're not hearing that. What you're seeing is I am not making as much as Joe. So we need to get you to a place where we can talk to you. And I don't talk to two year olds who are having tantrums. So t talk to me about how that conversation, because I can imagine, you know, your average CEO, even if he is having a temper tantrum, I don't mm -hmm. think he's readily going to admit that that's what's happening. Of course happening. not. <laughs> readily going to admit that that's what's happening. So I mean, what kind of reactions do you get from people and how does that conversation actually work? I mean, the, you know, to me, this sounds a lot like almost more like therapy than financial advising. Yeah, it's and it's not therapy. We always want to acknowledge that. <laughs> it's based on brain science and a lot of the um, what we base our tools on. Um, 
is from research from the MIT Brain Lab, um, as well as there's psychological journals. And of course, there are all of the studies that are out on what truly makes us happy. And so coming into GV um, can be a very different experience if you are used to traditional uh, wealth management firms, but usually people come in and it's refreshing because no one's trying to force them to make a decision at a point where it's difficult for them to make a decision. Um, and we acknowledge that. And I think there's a sense of relief for business owners and the CEOs, people who are always being forced to have the right answer, to have someone actually acknowledge that you may need to have a step or two before you get to the end point. Um, and so that's refreshing. Is everyone on board with it? Because they may say this is a little too woo-woo, too, woo-woo, um, uh, too fluffy for me. But at the end of the moment where we get through that, we have to get to business and we get to business and that part's clear. We just don't try to force a conversation about something as important as your financial future when we don't believe you're in the right state to do so. And so tell me a little bit about this. You, you mentioned anxiety of wealth pyramid. What is that and how, what, what, what makes up the pyramid? Oh, so this one is fun. Um, this is probably one of the most basic tools or, that we have. It's a conversation. Um, and actually we can take out, you have your piece of paper there. We can kind of draw it out, but you just draw a pyramid. And at the base of the pyramid, um, you write the word catastrophe. Okay. So we're unique as humans in that we can, we are the only mammal where we can imagine a catastrophe occurring. So it could be based on something we read, a past experience. Watching the news. Watching the news, right? And so I, this is kind of morbid, but I would, I would see it, sit in my office after 9-11. And we were over off of, um, Chambly, off of Claremont Road. And there's airport near there. And every plane that came through, I was looking at my office window, just wondering, just wondering. And when you, when you immediately sense a fear, you can very quickly imagine something going wrong. And when you imagine a catastrophe, how long does it take for you to go from imagining catastrophe to fear? It's instantaneous. It's instantaneous. So, so you move from catastrophe to fear. When you're feeling fearful, you will feel restricted because that, when that fear is happening, you go into flight or flight syndrome, fight or flight syndrome. The blood literally leaves your brain and it goes to where? Your gut and your extremities. And you are ready to punch someone or run really fast. Not a good place to be if you're making financial decisions. But, and it also that when you're in that place of fear, it so it restricts your ability to imagine and to understand all of your options because there is no oxygen there in your brain because all the blood left and the blood is what takes the oxygen to the brain. And so you feel restricted or you feel paralyzed by trying to make decisions. If you allow yourself to stay in that place long enough, you will eventually get to the top where you feel burdened. 
And people can be burdened if they are in a place of continued anxiety and stress over time. And then you are essentially think about being at the top of a pyramid. You are in the clouds. Everything feels like a cloudy brain. So our, we have, we acknowledge that if we are seeing or hearing stories that our clients are creating that's making them climb this pyramid, they're experiencing fear, you're having a conversation with them and they can't seem to get out of that cycle of that story, that they need to first be aware this is what's happening and that our job is to get them back down the pyramid, actually to get them off. We're never completely off, but to get them off. And one of the tools that we may use um, is called the the alternate story where they go through a a series of questions where they acknowledge the facts, the story, how they have put some value on that story, how it's benefiting them, how it's not benefiting them. And then saying, based on those same facts, what other story could exist? And you keep going there until, you know, go to one, two, haven't had anyone make it all the way to three, but they start to realize that they may be being irrational and now they've pulled themselves down. And now you can think about what all of your options are to solving the problem or looking at the opportunity that's ahead of you. For instance, a client right now who's looking at buying out a business and that wasn't planned, but to kind of, um, uh, to block out the competition that he may be having in that area. Well, let's get him in a good place where he can actually assess all of his options. Great. So, you know, it's very interesting. You describe all these conversations and um, all a lot of these tools that are around the behavioral, you know, around behavioral wealth management. One of the things that, you know, that I admire about GV and that I, that is, I think, a key part of your brand is you don't really... GV as a brand doesn't talk a lot about returns, right? You don't mm-hmm. focus a lot on we've made this person this much money or our portfolio performs this at this this rate. Talk to me a little bit about that and how how you've been able to accomplish that as a company when you're ostensibly managing people's money. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think we even struggle sometimes as advisors when we're having that conversation because people coming in the door, it's like, well, what's your return been? And it um, is largely supported, um, being able to move forward and, and, and advise in this way is largely supported by the fact that we have a very disciplined investment process that's run by a team. And the research that they put into designing our portfolio so that we can then customize them for our client allows us to have this level of competition of conversation with our clients, knowing that the, the asset management piece is working the way it should be. And so it does take a tremendous amount of faith that our process for delivering on um, our asset management is executing the fundamentals that it is being followed. You know, so if I'm having this conversation with my client, I need to have comfort that my, uh, that the investment team is then providing the support we need to support the plans that we're working on. And so we manage, um, as of May of this year, $1.3 billion in assets. So, uh, that's a tremendous amount um, for a firm of our, of our size, and I think it speaks largely to the impact that we make in putting into context what's important. 
what's most important. So we're not looking to beat any particular index. Our goal is to reduce the risk that our clients are experiencing and help them have a consistent return that allows them to do what they want to do long term. Consistent singles is the way we describe it. Consistent singles. Yep, consistent singles. No home runs. It would be nice. But you have home runs and they come in different um, ways. So this year we've had um, a tremendous run in the domestic markets, as we were talking about before, when we did our asset allocation tactical changes in January. One of the changes that we made was increasing our large cap growth and um, value um, exposure. That's bode well. We increase it, but we're not putting um, another 15, 20% there. We're making tweaks along the way. And that's what allows us to do regular rebalancing, which we do on a monthly basis in our clients' portfolios, as well as look on a twice a year basis for trends, headwinds, tailwinds, and economic factors that will allow us to make those small tweaks based on PE ratios and different asset classes um, that allow us to stay ahead of the curve, but not make any big bets. So, you know, as you talk about these consistent singles, how do, how do you guys me- measure success? We measure success about based on whether our clients are truly using all their wealth to create the life that they want for themselves and have more fulfilling lives that impact their communities. When I end a meeting, if I don't feel like I've helped my client make any progress in that area, that does not feel successful to me. And so it's always bringing it back to the things that we've determined on the front end based on identifying their life priorities, identifying the key relationships that they have, or where do they actually experience what we call flow or having highly engaged experiences, opportunities to be um, engaged with making a difference in the lives of others. If they're not using all of their wealth, their time, talents, um, their financial wealth, their wisdom and their networks towards that, that is not a successful play for us. And the reason why we got to that place is there were studies that came out that were very clear, and they continue to run these studies that show over a certain income amount, we're no happier. We're no happier. So if we're continuing to grow money, grow our portfolios, increase our income, and it's not bringing us a more fulfilling life where we're not feeling happier, then what are we doing it towards? And so our goal is to help our clients put purpose behind the increases that they receive. And that's how we measure success. Do you you quantify it in any way? We, I mean, we have to, um, we have to, of course, show consistent returns um, in portfolios where our managers are um, being, our managers are on par with their benchmarks. We have to um, manage for lower costs by adding things like exchange traded funds, particularly in asset classes where there is not, um, where there's so much information, there's great efficiencies in those markets. So an example would be um, domestic large cap growth stocks. There's significant efficiency in that market. Um, so it's very hard for managers to have a consistent edge because everybody's looking at the same information. So we'll have a 50-50 ratio there. Well, we'll have a 70-30 ratio of active managers versus passive in an asset class like emerging markets. 
And so we're measuring our manager performance, our manager selection process, our asset allocation versus certain benchmarks that we've uh, pulled from the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I would assert, and I'm going to ask you, that this focus on happiness is one of the key differentiators, You know, one of the, th- the things that differentiates GV from pretty much any other wealth management firm that I've seen. Would you, do, do you agree? I think it's, um, I think a few years ago, it probably was, um, more people are realizing, which we're really happy about, that you do need to help your clients focus on happiness. Um, I think one of the key differentiators for us at this stage of the game is we figured out how to do it in a way we can see the difference as our clients are creating these lives, you know, for themselves. They're making decisions that do not necessarily re- result in them having more money, but they have more fulfillment. Because they have more fulfillment in their lives. So um, we actually have tools and we have conversations. We train on this a lot <laughs> uh, internally on having the conversations where you ask questions to help the client uncover their wisdom. That's very different because we are, you come into the financial services industry being an expert and I want to give you the information. I know the answer. And so uh, one of my favorite refrains uh, when I'm working with the advisors and we're doing one-on-one coaching or we're training is to tell them, you don't know. And I need you to tell yourself when you're talking to your client and they ask you a question about what they should do or what you think. This is different from if they say, is this, you know, what is the P.E. ratio of a stock? Yeah. Right. That's different. That's very technical. Or can I contribute to my 401k $30,000 this year? No, you can't. There's a maximum. You can get up to 18000 if you're under 50. Um, but other questions are not as um, black and white. And so you have to be curious first and you have to acknowledge, I don't know. So let me ask you a series of questions so we can help you determine what the right answer is for you. And then we have to have enough emotional intelligence to remove our own or at least acknowledge. You can't really get rid of, but acknowledge our own personal bias when those questions come to us. So tell me a little bit about, you know, the, the, you mentioned a lot of things, right, that are not necessarily the, do, the dollars and cents that people think of mm-hmm. when they think of a financial advisor, you know, happiness, flow, you know, anxiety, these kinds of things. And um, I've always believed that there's this huge intersection between, you know, money and our money concerns and, mm-hmm. you know, our ontological, spiritual you know, emotional, whatever you, that other thing. Yeah. Um, and you, you or GV seems to be sitting right there in that intersection between those two concepts. Mm-hmm. You know, how does money, you know, and money and financial concerns, where and how does that intersect with who we are as people and our spiritual identity, emotional mm-hmm. identity and things like that? You know, as you sit in that, 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 um, that intersection, mm-hmm. what are the insights that you have, you know, that you've seen over time interacting with your clients? You say that, you know, We've heard the refrain so many times, money doesn't create happiness, but yet we all seem to be chasing it. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, I would love for you to comment more on like looking at that intersection between, you know, the emotion and the spiritual and, and finance. Yeah. Well, I think one thing we have to um, acknowledge is that and we we're talking about happiness. Um, happiness takes work and happiness takes sacrifice. Right. So if I want to have a good relationship with my mom, then I will sacrifice making sure the house is spotless when she's coming through for the weekend. And I am going to put my best face on, even though I'm really tired and not really up to hosting. But long term, that's going to make for a happier mother daughter relationship or experience within the family, because I've decided if I have decided this in which I have um, is that um, having a family, having a close family relationship is a healthy family relationship is important to me. So I'm going to put forth effort in those, in those areas. That's happiness. The other side of it is pleasure. And pleasure is all about the, you know, feeding that, uh, that part of us that is, um, is driven by ego and um, greed and Butter pecan ice cream and a convertible car. <laughs> I drive a convertible. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> that is pleasure. I lo- and the weather's changing, so we g- convertible people. We yep. love in our convertibles right now. So pleasure is good, but pleasure at the cost of happiness is not good because we're always going to have to keep adding on to fulfill that pleasure. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so part of the, the balance is a- acknowledging that, um, why you're doing certain things and what's influencing them. And often it's a money message. And those money messages come from some of the places you're talking about. They come from our, our spiritual belief center. It comes from messages that we heard from our childhood. It comes from the community we choose to be a part of today. Um, even our work community where we live, our social community, we have money messages that then either are beneficial and serve us very well, or maybe they don't serve us as well. Um, but they influence how we spend our money, how we choose to invest, how we choose to give, consume, and quite frankly, how we judge others. And so one of the big conversations that we have at the core with our clients is understanding your money messages, the sources of those messages, how they're influencing your life today, good or bad, or a little bit of both, which usually is, or usually positive and negative. And then making a conscious decision to decide, I am going to reframe it in a way that is going to be more beneficial to me. So once you have that reframed message that's being, you know, influenced from all of these areas of your life, then you can be more intentional and deliberate about how you make decisions on how you're going to use your resources. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed about a lot of the money conversations or money messages, as you call them, is a lot of them come from a place of fear, right? They're mainly driven by fear. You see some that are driven mm-hmm. by a more progressive, open kind mm-hmm. of mental state, but a lot of them are driven by fear, mm-hmm. as, as you described. And so aside from the 
bringing people down from the anxiety pyramid, which mm-hmm. seems to me to like be a very pointed, almost interventionist approach. Mm-hmm. How do you help people kind of reframe or change the underlying assumption, um, the fear driven, you know, kind of part of us that believes that there isn't enough money and money is scarce and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. It's hard. Um, I think it's something we work on all the time. Um, we we start with the idea behind money messages. The step before that is understanding the meaning of money. And so we really work hard when we are talking to our clients about this in the first introduction at GV to let them know that money is not security, is not a way to keep score, it's not a measure of your success. And if you hold on to those definitions for what money is, it will be very limiting. So if you think about it as a way to keep score, I think Oprah and Bill, they've already kind of beat us out there. There's always someone who has more. Um, If you look at it as security, whenever the market goes down or whenever you spend money on tickets to go someplace, you're going to feel less secure whenever you ha- you have money go out. Um, and so if you can take on a healthier view. And it's not a way money, to keep score. Tell us about that one too. Oh, it's not a way to keep score. So if you look at it as um, a way to keep score and then you are always going to be trying to do things to keep up with people around you or it's a measure of your success. Yeah. So we talked about success. The, the keep score is there's always someone who has more money mm-hmm. than us. Um, but it's not, if you look at it as a measure of your success, then you're going to make your decisions only based on the money aspect. But if you look at money for what it truly is, we believe that money is just a tool that you use to create the life you want. And um, Dave Ramsey in his book, he's, he, I, I love this um, statement that he says, he, goes, he says that uh, money has no personality until it's in the hand of the person who's going to use it. And so we give personality to money by how we choose to use money. Uh, but other than that, it's just a tool. And so the, then the question becomes, are you using your tool in a way that is most helpful, beneficial to what you really believe? Or is it counter to the things that you say are most important to you? And so I just usually ask the question. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. It seems to be different from this list of priorities that you laid out, you know, in our initial meeting, your life priorities and your definition of financial independence or when you said it was important to you to um, have spiritual growth. So let's talk about that. Do we need to change them? Do we need to reassess? Is this decision one that you want to go along with? And I'll never tell them no, that you shouldn't or you should. It's just a question. And so I probably went a long way around answering the question, but that is, it's really just bringing it to your attention. So you then have a chance to be curious about it. And then ultimately it's your decision on how you want to use it. We're just... And this is not rocket science, right? Or it's, it's really not anything new. We know it, but we don't have anyone on a regular basis who's reminding us of these things. So tell us about how GV goes about, 
you know, let's say eating its own chili, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you guys, you know, preach this stuff. How do you go about, about actually living it? Yeah. Well, you know, like you were, I was saying earlier, um, when you asked a question, one of the things that came to mind is that um, this ain't easy. <laughs> and so it's not, no, no, it's not easy. And so, and then it's also, it can feel very judgmental too, particularly to have someone from the outside in, having you question yourself, um, particularly when you're particularly when you're smart and I've got it all together. So um, we, we understand that. Um, and one of the reasons why we understand how difficult it is and we have a certain level of empathy with our clients is because we go through it as well. We've all gone through the um, when we first really developed the program at 12 months of just intense training and immersion um, into these concepts. We constantly train on it, but a part of our training is actually application. So we take ourselves through the tools. Our managers are trained to bring up certain um, communication problems that may be directly related to uh, some of these same concepts. We realize if you have a meeting that is you have a day of meetings sort of back to back to back. We've all had those where you have like two minutes in between one to the other that you may want to start that meeting by doing one of our stress and decision-making tools before you ask your team members to come in um, and engage. One of the tools we use is illusion of control. So you may be having a conversation with your manager about something and they may bring that tool into play. So it's nothing we can force on our employees to do it's highly encouraged and it's made available to them we have workshops in that we we have two sets of workshops workshops that we develop for our clients so they can get these concepts in a very interactive way with other gv clients and it's always good to kind of see that other people have some of the same issues and concerns that you have. So it creates community. And then we have internal workshops for our employees. And then all of our employees can, if they choose, they link up with an advisor, one of the senior level or mid-level advisors who take them through what we, the conversations we have with our clients. So we work um, and we have so much more work to do internally on creating more opportunities for our, our employees and not not just to experience the tools, but for us to have policies in place that support this idea. You know, we encourage vacation, please go have balance. Um, we encourage, you know, we do um, compassion tools and we talk about not having self-attack because that's not very um, beneficial to moving forward. That's the conversation I'll have with the client when they are not able to make progress and they're saying things and like, that's not going to help you, you know, make progress forward. So that that transcends and that translates back into GV. Great, 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 great. So you, you mentioned the program. What What is the program? that you take clients through? Um, it's very client driven. Uh, we have a model and the model um, includes addressing the financial planning, the tra- what we call, well, the traditional wealth management piece, which is the asset management and financial planning and dealing with life events as they occur. And if they're not going through a life event, then we'll take through and 
through kind of a set system to start where we may start with, we will start with life priorities. We assess confidence and we set a direction together on which, where we want to go based on where the client is, is very, you know, focused on where they are. Um, and then we acknowledge throughout the process that is infused with the human factor. And so that's, that is the program. And we do a lot of work on making sure it's designed um, to be flexible, yet give direction. Flexible based on what the client has going on and want and need to address, um, but designed enough to give them a path to go down. All right. So tell us what's new and exciting in the industry or new and exciting NGV before we wrap up. Um, I think the and this is going to sound probably really silly, but of course, all of this is new, is new and exciting. We have a website that is, um, as our, um, uh, VP, uh, senior VP of, of, of revenue likes to say, um, it is provocative and it is in <laughs> your face. It looks like no financial planning firm, but we love it. There's actually a guy there, um, who then is short. So, um, his shorts. Um, so that's one we're, we are really excited about behavioral wealth management and the way it's going to allow us to revolutionize the industry. And we really want to acknowledge that the industry is broken and it's not just about dollars and cents, debits and credits. It is about meeting people where they are, where they are. The other thing that's really cool is we have technology. <laughs> And so we have been on this two-year trend of putting a lot of things on um, smart boards and and um, running our meetings from smart boards. We're not going in with a big uh, uh, folder of paper anymore. Mm. And um, that's so much fun because we are messing up and we're figuring it out. I mean, I'm the youngest senior advisor, level advisor in the firm. We've been doing, I've been doing this for almost 18 years now. And I'm going, what's a smart board? <laughs> We're not writing on uh, dry erase boards in the yeah, office. Yeah. And our clients are loving it because everything we need to have a conversation, either virtually or in the office, we can just, you know, pull it up on the computer. I'm like an old fogey. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> and our clients think, think, think that it's neat and it's cool. So it's good to see the innovation um, take hold. Everything is so available at our fingertips t- these days, right? And so, um, yes, they want us to be smart. Yes, they want us to care. But they also, coming in the door, want to see, you know, are you keeping up with what's going on right. from a technology standpoint? Yeah, so that you guys can be current. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for a great show. It's been wonderful having you. It's been good to be here. It's fun, as always. Yeah, if listeners want to get in touch with you to hear more about anything you've discussed today, how can they do that? Well, you can certainly visit our website. I encourage you to do that because I've just talked about how wonderful it is, um, which is gvfinancial.com, gvfinancial.com. And you can reach me directly um, via phone at 770-295. Five five six two nine, or via email. I'm at Sherwin. I am Sherwin at gvfinancial.com. Thanks. Sherwin at gvfinancial.com. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com. <laughs>